Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. For better or for worse, we've got a jumbo-sized 90-minute installment for you, wherein Graham McMillan and I talk about British comics character Badass Judge Dredd, Brooklyn-based comics blogger Badass Tucker Stone, and the American comic book writer rock star Matt Fraction. Maybe it should be shorter, maybe it should be longer, but either way, it's here for your listening pleasure. And if you have an opinion as to what our ideal podcast length should be, or any other feedback you'd like to send our way, we invite you to submit it to us at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff. Esther. Graham McMillan, how are you, sir? I'm good, how are you? You don't sound a bit like Barry White. I don't? Okay, no. well, that's... Maybe I should... How about no? That's much better. If you keep that going for a long time, that would be spectacular. That'd be great. Oh, yeah. Comics, baby. <laughs> okay, that's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you? It's good to hear your voice. I'm good. I'm, uh, I actually had a work day with Douglas Wolk yesterday. Uh... Um, and he said the same thing. He's like, you know, how are you doing? I, I know you've been really busy. The idea of... It's gone to the point where I've been so busy over the last month or so. Mm-hmm. The idea of just doing my work feels luxurious. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not exaggerating. Monday, all I did was work. And I was like, this is the greatest day I've had in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Graham, there is there is some cosmic goofus and gallant thing that we are playing out here. Because, uh, you know, the flip side of that is... I think in the last week I've been really busy and that I've actually been able to put in, I don't know, no more than like two hours of work on my manuscript every day. Like two hours, that's about as stressful as has gotten for me, you know? It's um, a tough, tough life. <laughs> well, how's, that's, you, how's New York, I wanted to ask? Oh, man, it is amazing. I mean, you know, we're coming up on, on wrapping up our trip here and just uh, – Wow, a few short days. We fly back on Sunday, and um, it's it's been great. I mean, the number of things that we've done and seen, and um, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm sort of in the process of in the process of processing. Boy, that sounds lame. Um, it, you know, in terms of like taking in like all the art that we've gone and seen. You know, because Edie's pretty much like. Whenever there's a free night, we're hitting a museum, and there's a couple of shows that we've also paid to see, like at, at the just being able to walk through the the contemporary section at the MoMA was. Well, like, yeah, I mean, you're in New York. Yeah. I, while you're there, I think that's a good thing to do. I mean, exactly. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 having the month to do it. So honestly, out of the typical sort of New York experience, I think the only thing we haven't done is gone to like a. Th- you know, a live theater performance or musical. Um, and You've still get, got a few nights. I know, exactly. May dash out um, and or get mugged. So I, <laughs> You've still got a few nights. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if they can conveniently lump those two next to each other. That Maybe that's why musical theaters are inevitably in always really shitty neighborhoods. So It's, you know. it's a special performance. The mugging is, is not a real mugging. It's just someone who really wants to be on Broadway auditioning. That You know, honestly, <laughs> that would be actually, great. That's, that's a plot for Veronica Mars. 
Is it really? Have you, yeah, Veronica Mars in the first season, which I've been rewatching on Netflix, um, has this plot where like con men are going around taking money off of people, and it turns out all the con men are out of worked actors thinking they're on a reality show. And they've been hired by, like, these guys who are pretending to be producers who are really taking the money. So it can never be traced back to them, which I think is a great idea. That's pretty brilliant. That's a totally awesome idea. Um, well, and I can certainly see in New York people doing that sort of... Oh, Graham, are you still there? I'm still here. Oh, thank goodness. All of a sudden, like, all my little computer things changed color on the program. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, God, this thing's not connected. Uh, no, New York is such a... a such an amazing group of Kenny can do types that I can see people like being like, hi, I'm, you know, Philippe, I'm going to be your mugger. But what I really want to do is act, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> can you just tell me how, how is this feeling for you? Are you scared? <laughs> <laughs> I, I need a little feedback. Real time's okay. Just sort of like, if you have any suggestions, just shout them out. I like being able to, I've got a strong improv background. Exactly. Improv yeah. background. What, what are you feeling in this moment? Are, are you, are you, do you think it's good? Are you, just tell me, am, am I doing all right? Should I hold the gun higher? <laughs> Actually, you know, what's pretty funny is, uh, being here in New York, I've had a couple of times to uh, uh, chances to hang out with Tucker Stone, who mm-hmm. is an amazingly hilarious individual. And every once in a while, he'll say something around the fringes about his, you know, his acting training, but like always in the point of a point, like he's talking about something else. So he'll say sure. like, you know, yeah, I went to blah, blah, blah school. And one of the things they teach you is, and that's why this guy, and I always want to back up and go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 you know? <laughs> you did what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's, it's never like the appropriate time. So, um, he's, he's kind of a hoot because he, his sense of humor is so hilarious, but merciless. Like he is so, can be so mean. Um, in a completely offhanded, I'm not, I don't really even mean it or take it personally. He just has the, you know, it, it's it's like his, he possesses like some special bile gland that allows him to produce <laughs> that stuff, like without even thinking twice. And it's, it, it's hilarious to talk to him, but it, it's also one of those things where like I, I've hung out with him for like an hour or two hours. And at the end of it, I'm like... Like my my cheeks are pretty much wet from from just laughing so hard, but I'm also like, oh my god, I don't want to know what he thinks about me. You know what exactly, I mean? Like, yeah. I hope I'm never on the receiving end of what he just said. Well, and I sort of I sort of know that I, I you almost you know that you are. Yeah, you can't yeah. not be. Like I said, it's the gland. It's how he produces this stuff, but. It's just like, I hope I never hear it. I hope no one ever passes it along secondhand. I hope we don't end up in a fight and he actually says those things because he really is. Like, I've known some people who are, are pretty good at that psychic skewering sort of thing. And, uh, oh, wow, is he – He's it, it really is great. But he's, like, really funny and really on it. And it's, it's interesting talking comics with him, especially because he is um, – you know, I think you and I have have a tendency to be pretty pretty candid in uh perhaps even brutally so in the way that we talk about comics or creators or something, but I feel yeah. like of course we have kind of um a love of the medium that either makes it more understandable or less understandable. And I'm sorry, that's not that's the exact opposite of what I meant to say. A love of the big superhero genre, not the medium 
Like, Tucker Stone has an amazing love of the medium and has almost no patience, you know, for the superhero genre. And mm-hmm. so watching him, like, work through stuff is really fascinating because it's at a completely... Like, he makes incredibly valid points, but coming from a place that is so the opposite of where you and I, I might be coming from. So sure. it's really interesting talking to him in that regard. So, um... Uh, and, and, I'm 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 kind of I kind of want to. You should get him on. Yeah, yeah, we should. Uh, I don't know. I, I wonder if he would be game for that. It's it's one of those things where, um, yeah, I'll have to see. That would be hilarious. Uh, I you know of course I the few people who have actually asked, I've told them I think you know with um, entirely justifiably that that we would love to do guests on the podcast once we. Once we actually get Hibs on the show, yeah, know, I was like, going to say like we we have to get Brian first. Yeah, he's because, the absolute. I mean, it's first yeah, it's it's Brian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't think he would ever forgive us otherwise. And I, <laughs> I can't blame him. So no, but really, like it's you know, it might be our podcast, but it's still also kind of Brian's podcast. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. And so therefore, yeah, he should absolutely like be in here first, maybe a few times, and then. But yeah, at some point when. You and I can are like only speaking to each other through intermediaries, um, you know, and we start doing guests all the time, so we don't have to hear each other's voices. Like we can be muted out or something. Like I, that. I was going to say we're not doing that right now. <laughs> Damn it! I thought we were already in like the Shit, Abbey I'm, Road era Beatles. I'm Shit. always behind. I <laughs> thought we were just like everybody's lovable cutups doing LSD stage. Fuck! <laughs> Damn it! I'm at the uh, rubber soul stage, John Lennon, so I'm just gaining like weight on my chin. And <laughs> he totally did that, Do you not notice? Like he's gaining the weight, but it's all on his chin. Yeah, it's I'm... look at photos. Of, uh, it's really weird. I think that's why I grew the beard later. Yeah, probably, probably because he was like, "How do I stop this from happening?" Oh my god, that's the greatest impression I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I. Wow. S- from that on, you just have to do John Lennon for the rest of the podcast. Really, it was that bad, was it? Was it as bad as my like transforming robot that sounded like a dog coughing something oh, it was up? Spectacular! Oh, God. oh so there's a, a new TV uh, channel called The Hub, uh-huh. which is Hasbro's channel. Hasbro have launched a channel with the Discovery Network. Um, and it just shows, well, it doesn't just show, it shows lots and lots of reruns and stuff, but it's showing reruns of the 1980s Transformers cartoon, <laughs> which, like, I watched as a kid, and I remember loving. Right. So I was like, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to watch this. And it's like, Transformers followed by G.I. Joe. Oh, and right. I was like, I'm going to watch this. It's going to be nostalgic, and at the very worst, I'll get, like, a, a Techlander spinoff piece out of it. Sure, absolutely. It's like research, you know. Holy crap, it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, really, it's the funny thing is like it's terrible, but it's terrible in such a way that it feels like a 1970s Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really bad. I, and I, any nostalgic thrill I could have gotten out of it, I got out of it pretty much from the theme music. And right. then, like, so if they were in the story itself, I was like, oh god, oh Jesus, oh please, just stop, no. <laughs> You know, I, I have to admit, I'm looking forward to recreating that experience myself when I get back to San Francisco because uh, Warner Brothers is has released Thundar the Barbarian on DVD, but only directly through 
it's mail order shop because they're <laughs> they're apparently printed to order. So I don't oh. know if they'll eventually run out or it's one of those things where they get the order in and it's easy enough for them to just throw it on a DVD. So if you go to Amazon, you can buy it for a stupidly inflated price. And if you go directly to the Warner Brothers shop. Anyway, I remember kind of, I remember loving Thundar, uh, the Barbarian, because it really was like kind of the... It, it. I know that Jack Kirby didn't actually work on it except in maybe some of the design stuff. No, but yeah, he designed it because I've seen, yeah. seen his design sheets. Yeah. His design sheets. But he didn't actually like write the story. I think actually Steve Gerber did it. But it's so clearly done in, uh, you know, it, it, it's like it's, it's, it's a Kirby cartoon. It is. It's basically Commandy crossed with Conan crossed with Star Wars, and so there's like nothing wrong with that, other than the fact that because it's like a TV cartoon from like the late 70s it's going to be kind of boring and awful and and the animation's just going to be really 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 limited yeah hannah barbera were, were not great animators at that point i, I could send a dvd of um, super friends i told oh, you oh yeah 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 mm-hmm. oh wait graham are you there oh hey, hey you just sort of hey. dropped out I, yes. I i didn't do anything uh the animation was appalling in the super friends dvd mm-hmm. and i i you know there's all the jokes about how bad animation is. It was much worse. Yeah, yeah, it's really bad stuff. Like, it's really, like... It, and it's great because it's so... Un, depending on what stuff you got, it's so unsuper heroic. It is so dull. I remember watching that stuff. Oh, yeah, it, it's almost like they were like, well, you can't really have any of the superhero stuff. So here's lots of comedy aliens. Comedy aliens and and so many shots of, like... You would swear to God that the Super Friends were like, like some like people in the animation department didn't know what superhero meant, and someone told them that it meant debate team. Like, there's so many shots of just close-ups of people talking, unbelievably dull. And and if you're lucky, you'll actually see people running or sort of like trotting from room to room, you know, while music plays. Oh no, yeah, but they always run from. They're never like you know, let's go and get a sandwich, and they wander. It's like let's go and get a sandwich, right? And then, and then like then... action shot, but that's the action shot of the episode. It is the action shot of the episode. Is them running to get a sandwich? It's like the most fucking worst. And then filmation from that time, like that did stuff like they they did like three series of of like Tarzan or something like that. Filmation always did this thing where they would blow all their money on some really gorgeous rotoscoping. Oh, yes, which I remember from Masters of the Universe. Like, He-Man had some beautiful sequences, which would appear like two or three times an episode. Exactly. noticeably different from everything else in the episode. Even as like a 10-year-old kid, I remember that. Right, right. Yeah, so like the Tarzan thing, same incredible dull talking shots, and then they had this amazing footage of Tarzan doing a flying somersault that they would just put over anything in any action sequence. So, like, lion runs at him, cut to the flying somersault. Gorillas run at him, cut to the flying somersault. Like, three times an episode, and it really was. It's like, this is all you've got? You know, it's it's like in those early Battlestar Galactica episodes where they just had to reuse all the money they blew on the budget for the space effect scene, so it was always the same space fight again and again, and they tried to edit it a different way, and it was just again and again with the same music. Like, ugh, uh, TV was... It was a brutal time back then, I have to tell you. Um, It's funny, because I was also... um, Literally just caught a couple of new series on Cartoon Network, because it was on, as I was flicking between channels, and I was like, oh, this might be interesting. One of which is the new Scooby-Doo. 
mm-hmm. which oh, is right. by, which is from the same people who do Batman Brave and the Bold, which is why I watched it. Right, right, and I've heard um, amazing things about that. And actually. you can tell that it's from the same people who do Batman Brave and the Bold because it's got all these jokes mm-hmm. that re- really kids won't get but are awesome for adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the animation is... It's one of those things where the animation is all right by today's standards, but like compared with the old Scooby-Doo, holy right. shit, it's stunning. Yeah. Um, but the other one is Symbionic Tar- Titan, which is the new show from the guy to Samurai Jack. Mm-hmm. That is your favorite show that you've never seen. Really? Yeah, you will eat that shit up with a spoon. You will love it. You should really, really, really try and try down an episode. I will. I will. I, I will try. I'm sure. I'm. I'm willing to bet they probably have them for rental on iTunes or something, and I should look at them. Um, it's, love it. I remember watching that that premiere of Samurai Jack like years after it premiered, and everyone was talking about it, and somehow it came on in some format. I was able to watch, and I'm like, wow, he just. He just took the first issue of Frank Miller's Ronin and kind of yoinked it into a cartoon series. That's kind of so. Kind so of imagine, brilliant. imagine he did that mm-hmm. um, with, like, or rather that aesthetic, his Samuel Jack aesthetic, mm-hmm. with some sort of like mixed with like a Micronauts aesthetic. Wow! By which I mean like the toys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with a story about a. An alien princess who's hiding on Earth from invading alien forces, um, and she's helped by like uh, a guard dude and their robots, and the three of them can join together into a giant robot that wow. fights aliens. It's like, yes, this is first of all the most unoriginal thing in the world. Secondly, completely fucking awesome. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It's like that is so great because it's you know kind of silly, like so absurdly derivative, and yet the chance to actually like do that stuff in a, in a way that's kind of awesome. Like I'm yeah, definitely no, it, a sucker it, for that. It's just, well, part of it, what makes it great is that it might be so derivative, but there's no irony or distancing from it at all. Right. It's just, this is the story. Right. And I kind of love that. I kind of love that. It's, it's what I like about like old 2080 stuff as well, mm-hmm. where like, it's clearly ripped up and it's clearly unoriginal, but they don't give a shit. Right. Right. They're just like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, the, okay, no winking and, and right there. And um, and and I do, you know, it's funny. Actually, Tucker was talking about, he's apparently going on, like, a Judge Dredd reading spree where he's like, oh, my God, this shit is amazing. Him and, and Douglas Walk. Ah, uh, yeah. It, Douglas, it, Douglas is currently in love with Dredd uh, uh, and keeps on updating me because I've not read it since I've written uh, and keeps on updating me with what where they are in the plot. Uh, and it's turned into the wire. <laughs> I mean, it's it. It always has that had that tendency, mm-hmm. uh, and part of the reason I think that they can do this is like John Wagner's now been writing it for thirty fucking years, right? Um, but he he's got I think he's got to the stage where he's like I'm always going to be writing this, so I might as well write something that interests me. Mm-hmm. And so it's become like a political, it's become like Battlestar Galactica. It's become like a science fiction story that's really a political allegory, right? Right. Which you know, in in a way, is not far from where Dread started. It was just that political allegory was more of a cartoon, I guess. Yeah, it was, my, it was much more broad. It was like, hey, Americans are kind of crazy and their cops are like fascists. And now it's like, <laughs> now, now the allegory is about, you know, resettlement camps and mm-hmm. torture and mm-hmm. at what point do you lose your humanity? And, and, and all this shit that's amazing that they're doing it in a in a weekly comic, in a weekly science fiction comic that ostensibly still aimed at kids, right? 
Right. Well, but I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the awesome idea, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of that, that's what ended up hooking me when I was a kid was, is that, you know, it, that Spider-Man or Fantastic Four or, you know, Englehart's Captain America, like, you know, I remember, God, I must've been like in second or third grade when I read that issue where, you know, the, the leader of the Serpent Empire looks like to be the president of the United States who blows his own head off at the end and Captain America, like, like basically quits being a superhero because of it. Like reading that shit when you're eight, you're just like, what? You know, cause it is, it's, that's when it gets addictive. That whole idea of like, wow, this is there. There's like these weird secret truths that are being told. Yes. There's, there's like these ideas that I don't quite understand, but I want to. Yeah. That I want to. And there's a way of discussing this stuff that is, that, that is quote unquote grown up but isn't boring because there's people punching each other on every other page. So it's, yeah. you know, it's perfect. You know, it's for people who are serious, but don't want to give up their fist fights, you know, which is, which is why I think why Hollywood ended up embracing the, the, the quote unquote comic book aesthetic, you know, because that's like, okay, well, these guys apparently have been doing this for a while. It's amazing to me that there's, isn't there like a Judge Dredd movie in production right there is, now? There is a, another Judge Dredd movie in production right now. Cause remember they did the Slice of Loam one in the 90s that was really oh. not good? Yeah, exactly. That's my, that's the thing that, that is amazing to me is, is that Judge Dredd is such a strong concept that they keep coming back to it despite the fact that that Stallone movie was a turd and a money-losing turd at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I I think it's... Dread is... A, such a strong concept. B, I think it's one of those things that he's never broken America, but I think he's broken everywhere else. Right. So I I think it's very possible that they're like, well, we'll make the money back internationally. Hey, can you hold a second, Graham? Sure. Hold on. So sorry about that, sir. And Edie says hello, of course. Hello to Edie. Yeah, she was like, oh, tell Graham I say hey. So... (laughs) Sweet. Uh, yeah, so um, Judge Dredd, uh, to jump right back into it. Um, I, I can't even remember what we were saying. I was about, I know I was about to say something, and it's entirely gone. Well, we were sort of talking about the strength of the character, the fact that it could survive a shit movie like Stallone's and still be remade. Oh, I actually know what I was going to say. I was talking about how I thought that they could make the budget back internationally. Mm. And it reminded me of, um, did you hear about Ghost Rider 2, the sequel to Ghost Rider? I've heard that they are doing it and that the guys from Crank are supposedly doing it. So. And the budget is significantly smaller. Ooh. Uh, it's $75 million, which still sounds like a lot of money, but the first one was 115 Yeah, yeah. Um, and the original budget for Ghost Rider 2 was 130 So it's pretty much half of what they were originally going to make it for. Yeah. Uh, and part of the reason is it's being co-funded. Sony's still funding it with another studio. Mm-hmm. And the other studio gets all the international distribution rights, and that's where Ghost Rider 1 made most of his money. Yeah, I was about to say, that seems like I don't understand why they would actually give up that end of the deal, you know? Um, it's considering, like you said, that's where it made most of its money worldwide, so I don't know what the hell they're thinking with that. Um, well, I get we don't know how much money they're putting in. Well, they, that, they could yeah. like we're putting in fifteen dollars. <laughs> you can you can put right. in the rest, <laughs> which totally makes sense to me. Except that again, you sort of you try and play some fast switch maroos to that. Like I don't know, like you're going for broadcast rights, or I mean, the thing that's great is you've you've got Nicolas Cage like locked in for it. Although he probably has some sort of like you know 
he's kind of making silly money to make it. But no, his he's dropped his thing to almost half as well. He's gone from twelve million to seven. Wow. Now is that for just for is he going for back end participation or is he just have, also aware that everyone? No I have no idea. That part wasn't reported. Interesting. Uh, yeah, he's uh, the man's. I know, that man is desperate for some cash, is my understanding. So you know, now if like you ever wanted like Nicolas Cage to like come to your birthday party, like now's apparently a pretty good time. You know what? I do. <laughs> I should. I should have done it before it was my birthday. I could have called him up. You know, it's still time. Hey, hey, can you can you come to my house for my birthday? Just just hang around and freak people out. Can you do that? That would be Could you great. just come and be weird? <laughs> I'll pay you like I don't know three thousand dollars, and you can eat anything at the waffle window. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's the waffle window. That's it. <laughs> and it'll be like I'll do it for the waffle window. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I okay. I was going to ask you something, and I completely forgotten what it was. I know what it was. Your Matt Fraction reread. What prompted the Matt Fraction reread? Well, uh, uh, well, there's a couple of things. It it was a. I mean, first it was kind of a read. He's sort of a, he is like, you know, I I had read the cast the the first series of Casanova when it first came out. Started in on some of his like Marvel stuff back when he first started at Marvel, and of course, you know, read his like Iron Fist run that he did with with Boo Baker and liked that quite a lot, uh, and read his Punisher War Journal stuff, not too thoroughly, but thought that that was kind of a mess. Um, and uh, so, but you know, it's the sort of thing. He's a name. He comes up. It's the sort of like the name on everybody's lips. So really, the the two things that really uh, spurred me on were the fact that I, I, you know, they were selling that hardcover of the first nineteen issues of Iron Man for like ten bucks, and that's like just wow. Yeah, I mean that's so like that's basically a fifty cent an issue kind of deal that I was like, well, in a hardcover, I'm like, okay, how can I not d- pick that up? You know? Yeah, definitely. So um, then. The last time we talked, of course, that that third issue of, of Casanova came out, um, of the the third I don't know the third epic uh, or icon issue of Casanova came out, and based on our initial conversation on it, and of course, like I walked into, uh, you know, Bergen Street Bergen Com- Bergen Street Comics, yeah, where where Tucker uh, works, and he was like, so. You read that third issue of Casanova, and I was like, okay, well, I might as well. I picked it up at New York Comic Con. I actually got it signed by Gabriel Ba, I guess, who was there. Like the mm-hmm. Moon and Bob were there signing copies of their stuff. So I picked up the third issue, and then I was like, hey, you know what? If I go back and I pick up these other two issues, oh, that was it. Because what I found really amazing was that um, around the same time that everybody was kind of had lost their shit about the Bendis's comment about like comic book blogs. Um, I hadn't realized that like back in the, the first issue of the, the icon Casanova fraction had said some stuff about, about the people basically about snarky reviewers destroying things and embarrassing him and embarrassing themselves. And someone mentioned it to me in passing it at New York comic con. And I was like, wait, he really said that? Like, why did I miss it when the internet, like, read that and went, like, what the fuck? So I kind of thought that between those things, I, I was like, well, you know, I've got the opportunity. I'll pick up these issues. 
uh, I'll, I'll reread them. I'll, God help me, I shouldn't do this, but I'll read the back, his new back matter material for it. And I thought, you know, hey, you and I can talk about it. So what did you think? What did I think? Okay, uh, I thought that the first 19 issues of Iron Man, um, uh, which basically comprise, I guess, to the end of what World's Most Wanted, or mm-hmm. um, is is kind of hobbled by some really... Like, the art starts off as being functional and sort of more or less working and becomes a little more of a... of a, It hobbles the story a lot more as it goes on. Yes. Um, it really gets to the point where it is... It's distracting. It's not nearly as distracting as, as some other artists that I've complained about who use photo references but can't make the character look the same from panel to panel because they're not using the same references, I guess. But it's it's frustrating seeing stuff where the characters are, like, all the women are being used off the same, like, set of photo references. So they all, like, kind of literally look the same in a way that's distressing, you know? Yeah, which which gets really a problem towards the end of that storyline. And I would say in the, in the next storyline as well. Mm-hmm. When you've got... Well, pretty much the story is about three women. Right. You know, it's about Pepper, it's about Maria, and it's about um, the Black Widow by the end of World's Most Wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I mean? And, and there, I remember there are points where the Black Widow and Pepper look far too similar. Yeah. Because they don't have the identifier of the different colored hair that Maria does. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is super, super, super frustrating. Um, the other thing is that... that uh, my feeling about Fractions Iron Man stuff was that that there were some really weird, clumsy, sloppy that I assume are just m- not what mistakes. They are just real sloppiness. There's some real sl- like glaring storytelling error type things that I found really surprising in a guy whose work is kind of being praise to the skies and I don't know if I can properly this is one of the things why I thought it would be really great to talk about Fraction with you is it's so it's like those movies you know where like the person has to like um, deactivate the bomb and they're always like cut the blue wire no not the blue wire you know and there's like like trying to talk about Fraction the work without talking about Fraction the perception, the perception of Fraction, the writer, is really fucking hard. And I mean, it's really hard to do in sort of the comics blogosphere 2010 with just about anyone, but it's never harder to do than it is with Fraction because he's always doing this, like, don't look at me and then jumping into the frame. You know? I was going to say that. The reason it's really, really hard with Fraction is he makes his work about him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in a way that I don't think any other author apart from potentially Morrison and Mendes do? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think there are other people, because it's really funny. Like, there's ways in which, um, yeah, Morrison, and actually, to me, more does a lot of, there's more, more of at least Moore's thoughts about what's going on, I guess, um, than, than you would actually 
that, that so you can sort of infer or build a personality. And of course, as he talks about himself, you see how these things plug into the work, I suppose. Fraction, it does it in such a, a like, a, a very, in, in a way that I should always find laudatory. In fact, what's interesting to me about Casa, Casablanca, the first time I read it, was like, here's a guy who's putting a lot of really interesting stuff into the work about himself and his life or about comic books or the state of comic books. I think the thing that unfortunately bothers me about the way that he does it, the way, and I guess in a way that Bendis does it, is that it's a, it, it's done in a kind of, well, I, I hate to use this word because it's such the like, end of the argument type word, but fascistic, you know, there is a lack of generosity in the way that the, the, it's like, hey, this is about me. And it's like, oh, okay, then it sort of sounds like maybe you've got some parental issues. And it's like, you shut up. What the fuck do you know about me? You know what I mean? Like, there's a real, like, there's a, like, you have to control the message about yourself when you're putting these stories out about you. And I'm like, I don't, I don't believe that. Like, I, I've never actually believed that the author, if, if, the, if the art's any good or, or really is, if there's any artful, anything that makes it art, I guess, there's stuff in the work going on that the author is not going to know about, you know? Wait, I completely agree, yeah. So one of the things that always kind of bothers bothered me about Casanova the first time that it came out was there was such a constant contextualizing of the stories as they were happening. Like, this is what it means. This is what's going on. There was too much of an effort to kind of control how the work was, if not received, then certainly perceived. And I find that to be, like, I found that to be a a hard mix. Um, In some ways, what was kind of great about what was kind of freeing to me as a reader, and I think initially might have been freeing to Fraction as a writer about Iron Man, was the idea of he didn't have to necessarily... There's a way in which an Iron Man comic is indefensible in a way, and that actually works to its advantage. You know, it's like you don't have to to set up a bunch of arguments about how an Iron Man comic is supposed to be interpreted it is at its level an Iron Man comic. You know what I mean? Like there's certain expectations and things that have to be done. And what started off for me reading the Iron Man hardcover was this idea of like, oh, hey, this is somebody who's relatively clever. uh, Actually, I'm sorry, a very clever, intelligent guy writing about a, a, a superhero series in which the protagonist is a clever, intelligent guy. Um, and this should be a really fun read. And in fact, it 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 starts off as a fun read, and then like the first like the first storyline, the five nightmares, doesn't quite work out because there's story beats and things that he can't figure out. And when he goes into World's Most Wanted, I remember you saying a lot of like how much it mirrors Brubaker's Captain America run uh, for you the, yeah. after the death of Captain America. I totally see that because they take the they take the by taking that narrative engine and splitting it it becomes a lot more efficient. So, you know, when World's Most Wanted is moving between uh 
Maria Hill on the run and Tony Stark on the run and Pepper Potts dealing with the new suit and her new powers and stuff. It's it's a great little page turner. The thing that's problematic to me is is that there's also things that make very little sense or pop up in the story mainly just to ensure that things explode or that you have a fight scene. And that's fine, but it's not it's not at that point, it no longer becomes kind of a great superhero comic to me. It becomes kind of like, oh, okay, this is this the the thing that I that I actually said to Tucker, who was kind of like, whoa, 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 uh, is is like I'm like, like it's it's Bill Mantlo good. It's not like Alan Moore good. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. Very... But, well, the, there's there's more places on the spectrum between those two things. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, really, I would say it's better than Bill Mantlo good. Well, and the thing that's actually funny is Tucker was like, whoa, 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 because he actually thinks that, that Bill Mantlow's stuff has a lot more energy. So he was actually like, I think, I think, well, no, I think Mantlow's stuff has a, a, a kind of crazy energy, yeah, like yeah. A, a completely improvisational energy, maybe. Right, say. right. Uh, well, uh, and the way the fractions doesn't, I think fractions is very, very thought through. Well, it, th- this is my problem. If it's so thought through now, and this is something that maybe you can clarify for me because you've you've read beyond that first 19 issues. So spoilers, everyone potentially, including (laughs) me like, so there's this whole thing where Tony Stark, who's in the process of like losing his brain tells to Maria Hill, like go to this warehouse and do this thing. It's which, which is the MacGuffin of the next plot arc. Ah, okay. Um, and the, well, the McGovern is, he backed himself up and she's getting the hard drive he backed himself up on. Exactly. I figured, I either figured that one out or someone was kind enough on the internet to already spoil it for me. That part I don't have a problem with. The part that I actually have a problem with is that Maria Hill, like, gets to the facility, breaks well, in. And the controller's there for no reason whatsoever? Exactly! Exactly! Yeah, and, that's, and that's not a reference again, or at least it's not been an issue I've read. Which. Right. I remember thinking, what? Exactly. And I mean, that's not a, that's not an insignificant... Oh, no, that's there for a while. The only yeah. thing I can think is that it's setting up something way down the line. It's the only, uh, either that or it was so random, he just thought it's time for a fight. Well, that's it. It feels like it's, like it's time it's for a fight. Time, it's not even time for a fight. It's, it's time for a threat. Because there's not even really a fight. Well, there kind of is. She gets quickly yeah, no. subdued, but yeah, no, she's then brought into the verge of, and then she breaks out, and then yeah. So I mean, it's almost like a fight, but it's you're right. It's like this is where the shit has to fit, hit the fan. Here's how the shit's going to hit the fan. Here's how this particular form of of excrement will like mess with Maria Hill's head for the next few issues. All that's fine, except for the fact that it makes no like it's. It's such a it's such a bizarro drive by shooting like betrayal of the the way the genre works. Like I'm and again, this is sort of why I get back to this is why I made the Bill Mantlo comparison. Is in a way, you know, dudes like Mantlo and Conway or Len Wein, bless their hearts, like there was a formula that, that people like me growing up, like Okay, so the story opens up and Spider-Man's swinging by on a rooftop and somebody's getting mugged down in the alley and he goes down and beats them up. Like you know, on the one hand, it's like a it's like a formula shtick. It's like open the series with a bang. Here's the hero in action. Like things are up to a big roll, and you've got maybe a plot thread that starts something off. It's a weirdly passive way for the hero. Like the hero literally stumbles across something, and it's a threat. 
um, that, that in a way comic books have moved past. We moved into sort of that post uh, Sid Field's screenplay, Robert McKee storytelling structure where the protagonists are driving the narrative or the antagonist is counter, you know, in it, blah, 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 blah. But to have the controller pop up in a warehouse for no reason and fuck shit up and then she runs away and nothing is, again, for like the next eight issues or so, nothing ever comes of that apart from Maria Hill going, ah, my mind. I'm like, fuck your mind. What about all the people in that fucking warehouse? What the fuck was going on? You know, like if you're being generous, like you said, there's something being set up for further on down the road. If you're not being generous, this is the, you know, this is the early, the new millennium version of like, oh, hey, look, there's some muggers down in an alley. I'm going to go beat them up, you know. But at the same time, I don't find that that surprising because I feel that Bendis does the same thing in his Avengers run all the time. I mean, I, are you reading Bendis' uh, Avengers and New Avengers right now, so? No, no, I haven't. Okay, there's a moment in New Avengers, which I am otherwise really enjoying, which completely took me out of the story because, again, if it's not a setup for something down the line, Mm-hmm. It is a character acting so insanely out of character that I have no idea how it, why it ended up in the comic. Right. So the Avengers are all like hanging out and they get attacked. And in the middle of the attack, literally in the middle of the attack, mm-hmm. Hawkeye gets like his beeper goes and he's like, I've got to go. It's a priority Avengers call with the other team. Catch you later. I'm not really part of this team anyway. And leaves. <laughs> what? No, really, really, seriously, that's what happens. And, like, the characters are like, huh, that's weird. But, but nothing's done with it. I mean, literally, Hawkeye just gets up in the middle of, like, the third issue or something. He's like, yeah, I'm off. Right, right, exactly. Well, I mean, I've but, always but I feel that sort of stuff. I feel that sort of stuff happens all through, especially Marvel Comics. And it's funny to hear you say, you know, I thought we got past the Robert McKee story. And it's like, we'll never, because Ben just loves it. And... I have no doubt that Fraction loves it, and that there. I feel like there is definitely a writing style at Marvel, and I feel right. that Fraction is a really successful Marvel writer in particular because he combines Bendis and Miller really, really well. Yeah, agreed. I think um, that's a great description. And I, I think that that's one of the reasons why he's getting all these high-profile gigs, and one of the reasons why he's selling so well. But he also brings both of their faults. Mm-hmm. His plots tend towards the sensational. His characters tend towards the very samey. I mean, for me at this point, honestly, Tony Stark is Casanova. Because mm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they both have the same sarcastic, I'm better than this reaction to everything. Right. But it's really just a sham hiding their emotional reaction underneath. And again, I feel Fraction so much in that work. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is how he perceives himself. Mm-hmm. Um that it really becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. And so, and beyond that, like, I think he's only got a stock number of characters. And I'm not really criticizing him for that because Morrison, who's one of my favorite writers, has the same problem. Like, Morrison has maybe three woman characters and that's potentially being generous by one. <laughs> yes, um, one and a half, maybe. No, do you know what I mean? They're like, Jean Grey and his X-Men is Ragged Robin and his Invisibles. It's, right. the, same, it's the same character. Right. You've um, got your Lord Fanny Emma Frost. That's sort of why I went yeah. with half, because I was... Beat. But, but um, I think Fraction does the same thing. And I think what happens is... Whereas I think it's interesting in Morrison's work, because Morrison isn't really a character writer, he's a plot writer. Mm-hmm. I think Fraction sees himself as a character writer. And so his plots aren't as inventive as he thinks they are. 
Well, see, this is it. I think that he sees himself as as a plot writer, I guess, and I just feel like his plots are because the whole the whole grand setup, how it plays up, like both both the ideas for the Five Nightmares and World's Most Wanted are are really clever ones. Like it's a really good hook. It's just the execution is a little flubby, and I don't. I, again, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It's just that then there is the Matt Fraction, you know, comics most amazing writer tag that gets stuck onto it, and I'm like, but if well, he, but, but but here's the thing: are the ideas for Five Nightmares and World's Most Wanted really great hooks? Because they're pretty obvious. Someone else has Iron Man's technology, and they're better at it than he is. It's a right. fairly obvious idea, and. Iron Man has to destroy his armor because someone is using his technology against him. Is again a fairly basic idea. Okay, but he, okay, so here's... I mean, they're, they're both they're both essentially armor wars from the nineteen eighties, right? Done then, longer. Okay, see, here's and and this is where I'm actually going to to step in and say that that what looks like that looks like those are the hooks of the five nightmares and the um and world's most wanted, but I think that those actually aren't. To me, the whole um, the whole hook of World's Most Wanted is the idea of Tony Stark erasing his brain. That that doing flowers for Algernon in a in an Iron Man story, where he ha- also has to keep using more and more basic iterations of his armor, which, if you think about it, really doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's such a good hook to me oh, that no, I'm I, like, it, that totally I, I, works. I'm not sure if it's the hook or just the execution, but I think it's a really great idea. It's a great visual signifier that he's devolving. Right. He well, he's de- right. He's visually he's devolving. The idea of seeing like the super smart guy like kind of laid low. There's there's sort of thematic resonances about it about aging and middle hitting middle age and growing up and sort of slowing down and having to deal with accept your limitations in order to not be crippled by them. That mm-hmm. is for me. I was like, it, it's a resonant level. The other thing that's also, it's not the thing that I enjoyed about the Five Nightmares again is is like you said, it's the it's the Armor Wars hook, but the additional angle of it, which is kind of, um, you know, is that that Fraction as the writer is 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 splitting himself into two characters. So he's kind of identifying with Tony Stark, but it's really Stane who's the guy who's who's Casanova Quinn, who's got the the gorgeous girlfriend and is the one step ahead but is still trying to figure things out on the fly and is wrestling with his father issues. Like he's a mirror of Tony Stark, but he's also a mirror of Casanova Quinn. And of course in my mind, he's also a mirror of Matt Fraction. And so the ways in which um the ways in which Stain ends up being this, so you have it's it's like the idea. It's not like the Iron Man annual with the Mandarin, where the Mandarin's like this crazy, you know, Kim Jong Il guy that that is, you know, that you can never you you can understand, but you can't quite identify with. The part to me, part of the charm is of of Five Nightmares is like, yeah, I I sympathize with the villain, I empathize with the villain, and frankly, we are the villain. You know, and that's kind of an interesting hook for me for the Armor Wars. You know? See, and again, that's not necessarily for me the hook as much as execution. I, what I find interesting with Fraction's Iron Man, I think more than anything else he's done, mm-hmm. is that 
the core idea is something you've seen before, but what he does is he presents it in a way that makes it feel fresh. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, he dresses it up in a way. But what I think is really interesting is it doesn't stand up to rereading. Because when you do reread, or in your case, when you read, because you're a smarter man than me, the, (laughs) the, the flaws really, really, really stand out. It's not just that you're like, Huh, that never went anywhere, but it it becomes really right problematic. Yeah. Yeah. That these things just don't add up to anything. Because I think when you're reading these things, you're like, oh, where's this going to go? And you, you get sucked in. Right. But when you don't have the intensity of the initial reads, when of actually caring about the characters and the plot in that way, it falls apart on a reread. Right. And that's why I don't think that it's um you know, I, I think it's really important to sort of like, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, you know, to me, a good comic book is one where it sucks you in and moves you through in real time, and a great, you know, and a, and that's a good writer, and a great writer is one where, like, or a very good writer is one where you plant the ending and, like, everything, like, tidies up pretty nicely, and a great one is one where that happens and there's this additional layer of meaning and insight and stuff, or even the insight and meaning are so good that it doesn't really necessarily matter if everything quite ties up in a way, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's kind of like, okay, I'm willing to forgive this because this other, these other insights are so profound or what's being worked into the, the, the warp and woof of the material is so amazing that I'm, I'm down for it. So again, Which is pretty much my reaction to Morrison's Invisibles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the experience of reading the Invisibles for me is more important than anything else with the Invisibles. Interesting. Interesting. Because I think plot-wise, it doesn't really make sense. Right, exactly. I, I think there were massive plot holes in The Invisibles all the way through. Yeah. But I think it's wonderful because the experience upon reading it and all the different ideas contained within it mm-hmm. and the, the reactions it still causes in me when reading it. Yeah. Well, or, I, but I, I have a, I, It's a worthwhile experience to me. And that's something that Fractious Work doesn't do. And it's why rereading Casanova is really interesting to me as well. Mm-hmm. Because I think Casanova has a similar thing for me as... Iron Man, but uh, my problem, and this is my problem, not the work's problem, is that because I've so bowled over at it with it at first, mm-hmm. uh, and because I've since been so disappointed in other work by him that I think I was holding up to a higher standard than it really deserved, right. and so my disappointment in rereading is much greater than it probably deserves. Well, which is really funny because I reread those first three issues, and I was kind of like. These aren't so bad. In fact, there there actually was the one where um, the I guess it's the, the it's the second issue of of the original series, um, mm-hmm. and I which I guess means that it's the lead story of the second issue. Yes, the, you know yes. where where he is like sort of like fucked up and and detoxing well no 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 wait maybe that's the second story then because he's got this he's got the whole thing where first okay there's the i'm going to the island and i'm fighting winston heath story which was which at the time i was like it seems very calculated and then it's followed up by what i thought was a real mess of a story um where he's like sort of he's basically in this no man's is, land is that zone. the one where he's in oakland yes the one yes. where he's in oakland yeah. Went Oakland and kind of drugged out and hung over and yes. and I at the time I thought that that story was 
unbelievably self-indulgent uh, and, and pretty crap. And rereading it, I'm like, you know what? This is structured really, really intelligently. I also happen to think that it might still be crap. But at least I, I realized, like, looking through <laughs> some of the stuff, like, I really felt like, huh, you know, maybe maybe I was a little hard on old Matt Fraction. Like, reading those first couple of issues, I'm like, these things are actually structured pretty cleverly, and he may well be, like, coding additional layers. Beyond, like, I can see why he might be, not that I think that he paid any attention to me, but if he had paid attention to my reviews at the time, I could see where he might be annoyed, because I'm kind of harping on the Oedipal anxiety of the work, and he basically addresses that super, super blatantly in that story where he and Winston Heath are nakedly rolling around, um, beating each other up, you know, because the genre demanded it, as one of the captions goes. I can see where he'd be really annoyed, because it seems like a very obvious interpretation of the work, because he's, like, basically out there saying it. But I felt at the time he was saying it, like, kind of like, oh, but this is a joke. This isn't what I mean, and that's why I'm putting it out there, to make it really obvious that this isn't what I mean. And I'm like... I kind of feel like that's what's going on. But rereading it this time, I was like, I'm not so sure. Weirdly, in other words, to, to, to stop being so goddamn verbose about it, I feel like I had the opposite reaction on rereading that you did, where I see the flaws were super immediate to me at the beginning, and rereading it, I'm like, you know what? This is kind of really charming, and it's very, it's very structurally go-for-broke in a way that that is fun, that you just don't, that, that is worth seeing. Like at the time, I can understand why people are frustrated that there's not more of that sort of elements in his current work. Is, is it Bill Mantlo-esque? Really uh, the, the original Casanova stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And I think that that is my thing of like, at the time, I'm like, okay, this is a guy with potential and I'm okay. I'm totally okay with that. Um, and looking at it, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, to me, it reminded me a lot of, and I think I said this in a review at the time, it reminded me a lot of Tarantino in that it's very, 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 very steeped in references. It's very, very structurally co- um, complex, and it's incredibly guarded about its true intentions. Like, whatever he says that the true intentions are, I'm not actually willing to take it at face value. Now, what's interesting about Tarantino is he will talk a blue streak uh, or, you know, five blue streaks about influences upon his work. He can actually be somewhat cagey when pressed about what it means, I think. Um, Yeah, but I think that's because I think he's literally cagey about what it means. I think for many reasons, Fraction has really complicated slash difficult relationship with critical reading of his work. Exactly. He really, really does. And I think there's a way in sort of which in which I I can see a way in which Tarantino has been too. But honestly, I think for the most part, by choosing not to engage, like he's very much like, I'm not going to tell you what this means because I think it's better if you have your own theories about it. That seems to me way more generous than like, okay, here, let me tell you what's going on, and I'm going to underline it here, and I'm going to circle it here, and it's like, but isn't this also about, no, 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 shut up, shut up, you don't understand, you know, which is kind of a weird, which is something that pops up a lot in his characterization of Tony Stark, of like, 
no, 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 shut up. You don't really know what I'm doing here. Did you read or have you read the, I think it's, God, who is it? I think it's Tim O'Neill. His review of, semi-review of Fraction's recent Iron Man. And sorry, uh, Thor. Uh, you know, once this again, the, the one about Milton Beryl. You and you and Tucker Stone actually mentioned that he was like, "Oh, you should really read this," because like he's like, "What nobody knew is that Tim O'Neill has been reading Thor forever," and so apparently he really. Uh, tell me about it, Graham. Tell me more. Well, what I find what I find really interesting is he he makes this fantastic and i say that in the sense of like it's fantastical but also in the sense of i think he could be entirely right mm-hmm. um jump about fraction and his attitudes to writing marvel comics mm-hmm. and the way it has affected him as a writer and the way it informs his reaction to critical reading of the work and that's almost like separate to his review of the comic it's a review of the comic is essentially like no you're trying to shift the goalposts it's just repeating what you did in your first issue It's not that good. Mm -hmm. But before he even gets to that, he essentially says, when Fraction got the Marvel work, he didn't bring his A-game because it wasn't something he owned. Mm -hmm. Over time, he has forgotten how to bring his A-game. And he has started to believe that he's trying his hardest with the work. Mm -hmm. And that when people criticize him, he reacts to his inner criticism of himself. Right. As opposed to what they've actually said. Right. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. because that And that was why I was kind of intrigued and appalled by Fraction's statements in, in that Casanova where, you know, his, his don't be a hater statements. Where it was yeah. kind of like, wow, really? That's where you're like going? And it was in a very, very chiding yeah, and bear, bear in mind, like, Fraction, again, is bringing a lot of the shit himself because he started off at Savant. He started off being that dickhead on the internet. Right. Well, see, and that's, I think that's the thing that's problematic to me. The whole thing goes back, and this is one of those things that I had meant to look up and send to you. There's, a, there's an amazing interview uh, with Dave Eggers back around the time that um, A Staggering Work of Heartbreaking Genius comes out. Mm-hmm. And he's being interviewed and the guy asks him a question that is kind of is is phrased smart acidly and Eggers goes on to take him to task for paragraphs. I mean, because as I recall, it's, you know, I, I don't, you know, obviously it was in person, but it's, you know, transcribed. He goes on to like, no, 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 dude, believe me, I've been there. I know what you're doing and it's destructive. It's destructive to you. It's destructive to me. You think that you're being clever and you're bringing something to this, but all you're doing is hurting yourself and me and the people around you and art. And I really got that sense. Like it was like he goes on at huge lengths for it, and Fraction does that same thing. Like goes down into like a paragraph in his little Casanova thing, and I'm like, yeah, that. I think that maybe that's what you were doing when you were doing things, but it seems to me very weird and arrogant to be like, to assume that because this person phrased something like a smartass, perhaps in hopes of being appreciated by you that he is therefore, like, attacking you and attacking everything with his, like, gut-shot-level demolishing irony. 
Well, I, I mean, I can, I am unable to react to this objectively. Right. Because of my fraction story. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, all I will say, because I don't want him hating me for something that I didn't think I was doing in the first place anymore right. than, than he already does, right. is that I really think that a lot of his um, issues with the internet or reviews or whatever is all to do with what he thinks they're saying as opposed to what they're saying. And that all comes from what he's bringing to the table. Well, yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree. And, I mean, and it's a shame because I think he's missing a lot of valid right. criticism right. because he writes it all off as bullshit. Right. Well, and this is actually where I was going to go is, you know, I think I, I – I will end up leaving it in when we're sort of, you know, catching up on what we've been up to. I have been super, super sluggishly, like getting moving back into the third draft of this of this book that I've been working on for quite some time now, well out of proportion for what the the finished product actually is. Uh, and I feel like having spent like being stuck in the third draft of this, I really kind of get. My secret theory is is that when Eggers is it is like going crazy or when Fraction jumps all over those people because because of what they're seeing in themselves, is I think that those are guys who actually just didn't didn't like come out early doing what they were supposed to do. Like it took Eggers I mean, young compared to, to me certainly. Um, but those guys actually entered the field, I think, later than they would have liked, and I think spent a lot of time being, I guess, creatively blocked by their own critical impulses. And so I feel like at the core of it, there is this idea of, because I do know, when I sit here, like, I have to let this book be its own shitty thing. And that means having to have the courage to 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 fail and to be awkward and to just kind of basically shit my pants in public. And the thing is, is after spending a, a long time critic, like looking at others work, being critical, being glib. If you start thinking about what other people are going to be saying about your embarrassing shit stain on your pants, you're never going to get it done. And so you, you kind of have to power through. You know what I mean? And I yeah, I, I've, I'm fascinated by that because uh, just recently I was telling someone why I'd never write comics, and that's pretty much the reason why. It, it wait is is go with that a little bit more. Why you've never written comics? Did you no, say? No, why why I, why I would never. Oh, why you would never comic, comic writing as a career? Right. There, like I have I have two reasons. Mm-hmm. One is I actually don't think I'd be very good at it, and that's not false modesty. I just don't think I would be able to come up with the ideas and then translate them to the page in a way that would satisfy either me or anyone else. Right. Um, but secondly, like definitely a fear of like karma, critical karma. Right. Right. Uh, just coming back and biting me in the ass. Right. Which I, I have a sneaking suspicion is that thing that, that kind of, it's not just that it sets them off when it actually happens. It's that there is, there was a point or depending on the person there are many points when you're sitting in the room 
and you have to you have to disable that that little poison pill yourself you have to disassemble that bomb so that you can move forward and so when it comes back up again there's a little moment of flip out because you really kind of have to wrestle with some impressive levels of i guess fear at least for me like it's really a fearful process of like wow i like you have to you have to come to terms with yourself in a certain way and there's this there i think our various strategies for the way that you do that um and i don't necessarily think that um i mean i think it's a shame graham i think that you actually you know the few comics of yours that i've seen back from your student days i i quite enjoyed and i would actually love to see you do more stuff because to me it's kind of like like I find myself with the with the comics field and where it's at right now, part of the problem in a way is that there are too many fucking people in the field. Like the number of professionals like all but outnumbers the number of like, you know, sort of the informed audience kind of. Like there's the people who are still reading and reading and reading, you know, the eighty thousand people or whatever who are reading New Avengers, which just seems sad to me in a way. Um but there's just this feeling of like um like it's not a good time to to for me in a way to try and enter the comics field or to break in more push my foot in that door more but you know what it, who fucking cares like ultimately it's going to be that sort of thing of like if at some point like 10 years down the road i have to apologize to somebody for wasting their money it's going to be hard but i'll do it you know but mm-hmm. there's kind of there is kind of that thing of like you know and and this is the thing that bothers me is is that uh, to 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 you know further intermingle my process with the processes of other people that could be um, you know a million times different is that there's something very valuable to trying to figure out the difference between fraction the actual writer and fraction the image of the writer that is very important to the to a certain subset of people in in the industry that is antithetical to the interests of fraction the writer you know what i mean like there's things where he's trying to create him every every writer is trying to create themselves with their work and consequently there becomes a point where you once once the other person has a different image of you it's it's potentially psychically damaging because you're sort of you're sort of willing yourself into um existence like i the really bad comic book metaphor would be like it's like gladiator in the fantastic four you know that burn issue of fantastic four where he's capable of doing anything as long as he believes that he can do it yeah yeah once he loses that ability suddenly you've got the chance of kind of beating him you know the thing that actually bothers me is there's so many people out in the comics field who are copying the pose of like you know i i i'm gonna pull his name out of a hat and he's probably gonna punch me in the face someday but like frank thierry who's like i'm doing the best work of my career and it's like okay yes fine like everybody's saying that like it doesn't but that's because you could never say this isn't as good as my last book. Like right. you can't. It, it's. I mean, what's the alternative to just say it's all right? Um, you can talk about other things. You can talk about a lot of other things. You can even talk about what you were going through 
while you were in the process of creating the work. And then hopefully leave off the tagline of, and that's why you should buy it, because it's the best thing I've ever done. Because you know what? It's kind of not. I think that it's actually, I'm okay. Like, I grew up in an era where you could listen to me, like people who were failing talk about their work, and it would still be educational, and it would still, it could still sell you on a work. You know what I mean? Like, you could still be like, like the process and the struggle that that person's going through, I want to see it on the page, even if it fails, you know? But for someone to turn around and, again, use the same adjectives to describe, like, a Brian Bendis book that they used to use to describe a Mobius book or or a, or a work by Bilal or something, you are you're kind of damaging the, the, the... I don't know the 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 immune system, I guess, of the of the of the of the medium. I see. Um, I I was so with you up until you said that because I've, <laughs> I've got no problem with people saying this is the best book I've ever read. You know, this is a, a high point for the medium or anything because that's their opinion. I can disagree with their opinion. I can think they're wrong. Oh, agreed. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think that's damaging, like the immune system of comics. At all. Well, no, no, no. I'm sorry. The difference being when you're somebody like Matt Fraction, who 10 years ago was using that phrase to talk about, you know, Mobius. You know what I mean? Like, there's a sort of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, of like, but, but here's, here's the thing. Fraction, for better or worse, learned that from Ellis. Well, yes. But what happened is Ellis, at some point, no one believed him when he said that about his superior work, in part because he said it was such a wink that right. you knew that he was lying. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Fraction has, uh, and again, this is us doing like crazy psychoanalysts, you know, of people we don't know, but right. Fraction has such a thing about sincerity mm-hmm. that he can't do that. Right. Which my my complaint about it is I think that he is not, sincere and he will get really angry about it but he gets angry about it in a way that unfortunately leads me to suspect that he is again that that's more the mark of someone who's not sincere than someone who is in a way you know like that's kind of my my problem so my thing is yes by all means like because i was i was at wondercon for the brubaker fraction panel or maybe it was san diego and i swear to god it was 45 minutes of people literally thanking those guys for bringing back the character that they knew and loved. And you know what? I, I, and that's where I'm, and I'm not, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that those are the people that are damaging the immune system because, because those are people that are like, you know, that's, that's what they're reading. That's their opinion. That's where they're at in life. That's what's going on with them. That is totally great. I'm a little more leery when you have creators, particularly people who are, very knowledgeable in the field and they're all um they're all making the noises that they you know are making about stuff when they kind of should know better like they don't there was no like stand like there's this weird you know it's like like just phoenix and dark phoenix there's like stanley and now there's dark stanley where the writer goes <laughs> out and sells the work in a way that is kind of corrosive because you know, because there's an insistence that you have to actually take them at face value, which is something that I don't think that Stanley always left you the out 
in a way by his very by the sheer amount of his hyperbole and a number of other good things. And like you were saying last time, he was very inclusive in a way. Um, like he never really badmouthed anybody. Um, I just but, find but, it, yes. but here's the thing. This ties so back into, I can't remember if it was you I was talking with last time or whether I was talking about this someone else. The interview with Tom Brewer and Axel Alonso, right. where they came out and said, yeah, not every book's going to be great, but we can't say that. It's, it's a, uh, there's a knowing, I don't want to say knowing lyingness about comics, but there right. is. Like, everyone knows they're lying. Right. The people who are saying it, the people who are hearing it, and it's like an accepted thing at this point. It's accepted that every project you're working on right now is the best work you've ever done. It's accepted that this book will change the Marvel slash DC universe forever. It's accepted that all of those things will be said in relation to a work. Right. Um, and that none of it means anything. Right. Well, but, 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 but. And I'm not, I'm not saying that as a defense. No, I'm no, saying no, that no. in a sad way. Like I, I genuinely think it's horrible. Yeah. So, but the thing is, like when so if Fraction said, I don't know, his Thor is the best Thor since Walt Simonson's, and you know it's pushing comics forward or whatever. I don't believe him. Mm-hmm. I don't even think he believes it himself. Right. I think he's doing. He's playing what he sees as the game that he has to play. Right. Well, and that's the thing that's sort of frustrating. <laughs> bring bring it all back to the to the to the wire. You know that that the game is the game. Uh, I'm not sure that I believe that. Like, I mean, listen, I believe that everyone believes that. I believe that he feels that he has to do it. I believe but, but that. But isn't in that nature, isn't that the important thing in that case? Uh, that he believes that he has to. No, no, that not just him. That everyone believes it. It doesn't matter whether it's true if everyone believes it's true. Um, perception is reality in this case if everyone involved in the comics industry believes that's the game even if that's not the game it becomes the game right well no exactly that's the thing that's really frustrating but that's all the more reason why there the people who choose who opt not to play or there are people who who try to do things differently i think i think it's kind of a relief you know it's a relief and hopefully that you know it becomes the only way that things change you know, is I do wish that there were people because I do think that I can't really imagine that if Fraction and this is the thing, I, I should back up. I was really basing it more on some of the stuff that, that Fraction's saying about his fellow Marvel writers or mm-hmm. the things that his fellow Marvel writers will say about his work. The whole sort of mutual back padding thing, which, you know, God knows like the the you know the book industry has had for years, but the whole like, oh, I think so-and-so is doing the best work of their career is one thing. When they're saying like, this is some of the best comics that's ever being produced in the superhero market, period. Like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, really? You're going to be saying that? Like, uh, you know, I do have difficulty with the idea that like maybe all the, and maybe all these guys really are so genuinely in love with each other's work, which is why it ends up sort of rapidly sounding or seeming the same. But I, I worry about the way that the industry sells itself to us and sells itself to each other, because I do think that there is a, to break out the Gary Groth dictionary, a deleterious effect on 
the entire industry to the point where nobody believes it. Like that whole idea of like must read comics, like when everything is a must read issue, like I don't think anyone even starts looking at all anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that, and I do think that maybe there is a reason on top of, like, you can change the price, roll the price point back from three ninety nine to two ninety nine, but you also have to start having the idea that an internal comic book standard, you know, sort of where people are like, hey, this is great, to like, hey, this is, we kind of dropped the ball on this one. Not that you would ever say that out loud, but you just you focus on different things, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, so do like, you think that the problem is that people are not saying we kind of dropped the ball on this one? Uh, no, because I don't think that anyone, like you said, I don't think anyone ever says that. I don't think anyone ever says that, but it, it coming out of the gate, although they might admit to it later, I think what happens is, you know, kind of that thing of like, has John Workman's lettering ever looked better? I don't think so. You know, that kind of thing. Like, it's sort of like, Spider-Man like there are times where it's like I think it's kind of great when writers are like yeah look at Marcos Martin he's doing amazing isn't he doing like amazing art like it's no matter what's going on with my story it's worth picking up just for his art I think that's kind of gracious and like when it's actually true like when it's not being said by the the editor who's like basically like I'm not going to tell you that I he's the only guy who could turn this around in like four and a half hours what I stopped doing was I just sort of stopped reading the internet news so that I wouldn't have to get all this bullshit. But then I find that I really am finding myself like lagging behind my ability to sort of carry on a discussion with people about the work. You know, I sort of feel silly. Like when you and I talk and you're like, did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you hear about what happened here? Or have you read this book? And I'm kind of like, um, refresh my memory, you know, like, (laughs) Like, it's very useful for podcast purposes, I think, for us to have you as sort of the urbane Johnny Carson and me as the sort of clueless, like, Ed McMahon. But there is a way in which I, for my own self, I find myself getting frustrated being like, maybe the maybe the audience would actually like me to hear, you know, hear my opinions uh, and have them be, like, somewhat, like, informed for a change. Like, that would be kind of pleasant, right? Don't you think that would be, like, a good change of pace, you know? I, I'm I'm never going to say anything ever again so that people can hear your opinions. <laughs> <laughs> no! It's the Jeff Lester podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Ah. I may call it Jeff Lester Rises. <laughs> that is so hilarious in so many levels, because it is... <laughs> It's pretty much the title of, I think, every Doug Mensch, Paul Glacey story from the 70s, really. Just, you know, like, the black cat rises, you know, a dark moon rises. Like, it's every Master of Kung Fu story titled by them, if nothing else. But with my name inserted, which is... Oh, well, you know, do you know why I said that today or not? That they've announced the name of the new Batman movie, which is The Dark Knight Rises. That's where you're going with it? Okay. That's where I was going with it. I read that on Twitter, and I just assumed somebody didn't know what they were talking about. So that's what they're really doing? That's, that's really what it's called, yeah. Oh. It's terrible, isn't it? Oh, that is the worst title. Hopefully they will – I'm sure they won't change that because they're already I, I don't rolling think they out all sorts of like <laughs> promotional material. But really, that makes them sound like a fucking cake, doesn't it? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just so bad. You know, I was thinking, like, even if it was something like The Dark Knight Ascendant would sound better than Rises. Yeah. Yeah. There's something weirdly off about that name. Yeah, it really is. It's just, it's, I'm, I'm sure that a poet could actually break down why 
the, 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 the all the hard consonants and then that silly rises part. Like it, it actually it doesn't create tension, it actually dissipates it. But I, I don't know. Like I it's just that's a that's a really, really horrible title. Um uh I'll be kind of I mean, you know, I mean there have been movies that I've loved with equally bad titles, right? Like what's the worst I... title that you've ever seen? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, come on, help me out here, Graham. Like well, all I can think is like you know, the Star Wars movies actually have terrible titles if you think about it. Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, well, the, certainly the later ones do. I guess Return of the Jedi doesn't sound that interesting. Return of the Jedi is kind of bad. And Empire Strikes Back is actually kind of a shitty title. It's just become like so, like known in our brain. Yeah, it's a, like it's it's like when you say a word over and over again, it stops sounding like itself. Right, right. The Empire Strikes Back sounds like that. It sounds like a Star Wars movie now, but the sentence, The Empire Strikes Back, is kind of dull. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's also kind of that weird, like... it. it to me, it did something in a way that The Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones kind of didn't, which is it's supposed to sound like a, a movie serial title, which is that mm. weird mix of, like supposedly dramatic but oddly passive um see the attack of the clones works for me in that way attack of the clones does sound like an old movie serial to me yeah it does sound like an old movie it, and it's actually probably one of the better titles i think in that in that regard i guess the empire strikes back i kind of like the idea that if nothing else you sort of know what you're going to get i think that's one of the things <laughs> that i appreciate the empire will strike well hey batman will rise well okay but no 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 but okay well and this is the thing like, the thing about okay, so here's here's Star Wars, right? You've got Star Wars. You go, you see it. It's the end of things. Like the the Death Star blows up. They all get medals. Everyone cheers, and then the triumphant credits roll. You know what I mean? Like that's the end of Star Wars. When it's called The Empire Strikes Back, you are cued in to the idea that people's shit are going to get fucked up. You know what I mean? And and to be honest, I was so fucking dim, I still didn't get it. Like, I stumbled out of The Empire Strikes Back going, that, that was so dark, and what what happened to Han Solo? Like, we don't know, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, okay, The Empire Strikes Back is basically saying the Empire is going to fuck up people's shit. And so when it opens and the Rebels are hiding out on a planet and they're miserable and they're getting their asses handed to them on the plate and everyone's on the run for like two hours, you can't like point to it. It's not like it was called like Triumph of the Ewoks. You know what I mean? Like Dark Knight Rises basically sounds like it's going to sound like like it, unless unless they really fuck with us, it's kind of like, well, yeah, no shit the Dark Knight Rises. You know what I mean? Well, like, well the, the fucking with us is uh, apparently intentional. Right. The the rumor is, and this is based on like interviews Chris Nolan gave for the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. that the Dark Knight was not named after Batman. The Dark Knight was named after Harvey Dent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the Dark Knight Rises becomes a different movie. Right. It, so that makes it sound like it's about the return of Two Face. Is what you're saying? Is, yeah. Uh, uh, right. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And again, that's which is probably why they don't have the ascendant thing. I also think that honestly. The Dark Knight Rises means that that the movie. It, I think what Nolan's going for is is that Batman wins and civilization loses in the third movie. You know what I mean? Like it's 
like it's it's one of those weird like they've got it worked out where the end of it is kind of like the dark knight means you know essentially that the civilization is is basically you've got a fork in us you know not in any sort of like there's going to be rioting in the streets and atomic bombs are going to go off but just in that i think that it you know if you're playing with the title that way then i assume that they're going for a thing of like yeah this is going to be like really really kind of grim in the sense of you know my generally pessimistic sense of humanity which really i don't think was altogether earned in dark knight is going to be you know rampantly um on on display in the dark knight rises mm-hmm. i don't, yeah don't get me started in dark knight i'm i'm like the one person in the world who thinks dark knight is a terrible terrible movie you know i think that it's I, you're right, because I know, and you've said it. I think that it's actually two thirds of a great movie, and then uh, like one of the like a horrible. I, I horrible think ending. I think if you if you cut it in half, it makes one good movie and one absolutely shitty movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you I, can I, even tell when to cut it in half. It's when the story changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, it's so long that it yeah. could be two movies. It really could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, see, this is great. I actually want to, like, call you back and, like, ask you about Dark Knight Returns so that you can just make those sorts of vowel noises. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I should actually be getting off the, the phone soon because I have to go and get my teeth done. Oh, okay. So, yes. We will. Uh, but I think we should keep going because I have one more other crazy pop cultural thing to tell you. Have you been watching Mad Men? Uh, no, I'm behind on the entire season. Didn't it just, wasn't the finale just last week or yeah, something? It was like two weeks ago. But no, what I was going to tell you is, in the season, this is not a spoiler, Roger Sterling is writing a book. He's writing a memoir. Ah, uh, that's lovely. Uh, that is, that from what you hear in the show, because he dictates it, so you hear parts of it. Right. It's like exactly what you'd expect from Roger Sterling writing a book. <laughs> And it turns out there's, there's actually going to be a real version of it. It's going to go on sale. No, really? Yes. Oh, my God. It's, it's going to be called Sterling's Gold, which is spectacular. <laughs> and the the um, excerpts that have been released to the press include this wonderful line, which, as much as I have always thought Roger Sterling was the funniest character in Mad Men, this Absolutely. might be the greatest line ever. Whenever God closes the door, he opens a dress. <laughs> Oh, Roger Sterling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love that character, of course. Um, I would love to get caught up on Mad Men because there's, there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on in that show uh, in the first few seasons. And I, I'm really... Oh, God, sp- yeah. Yeah, you and I could pretty much just, like, spend two hours talking about Mad Men this year. Right, right. Well, and, and who knows? So- maybe, maybe we should. I don't know. But... Um, well, okay, so we spent a lot of time. Do you think that I generally made sense? And also, I, I think you made a lot of sense. And but I didn't. Did I hog the the microphone spotlight? Do you, do is there? I, I I do not feel so. I thought think what you're saying was was great. All right, <laughs> you were beautiful, baby. Uh... <laughs> oh, great! It's just the camera loves you. <laughs> Uh, oh, before, okay, so before I go, because seeing as like we will not record this part because we've just done like the reassuring part. <laughs> no, let's include this part in because it's a little pathetic to like close on, but we probably will. But no, it's, it's um, so sad. 